Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 190, Pirates of the Welsh Coast. In episode 168, we talked a lot about the Welsh experience with the sea from the prehistoric to the early modern period. In this time, the real expansion of English sea power began as the Royal Navy went from an afterthought to a worldwide force of empires and trade. Wales was as much a part of it as any other part of the British Isles. One aspect of that we talked about at length, from the military to the traders who helped facilitate the triangle trade that brought slaves from Africa to America, as well as sugar, rum, and tobacco from America to Britain, as well as the wool and weapons that were brought to Africa from Britain. As much as legitimate trade was done, so too, like every other feature of society, there were those who sought an easy score, or at least the big score. Hard to say anything on the sea was actually easy during that period. Wales had been, at least since medieval times, a haven for pirates, or at least groups that seemed close enough in description. Archer lords were always willing to protect, in quotes, their people, and would at times give safe haven to ship thieves, as they were called, who were pirates in all but name. Bardsley, Caldy, and St. Tidwell's Road, a series of islands that make up the area just south of uh, Abersosh, were some of the locations that became areas that would protect these pirates from prying eyes. They were also, of course, former sites of religious structures and monasteries up until the dissolution of those monasteries in the mid-1500s. Of these protectors of the various Welsh pirates, we have the Buckleys and Winds in the north and Sir John Parrott in the southwest of Wales who were implicated in, or in some cases even actually instigated, pirate attacks from which they allegedly profited. These accusations never reached the level of charges in most cases, but it showed that the likely reasons for sponsorship of piracy was not just to protect their people, but also how much it benefited rich men in these positions. In the Tudor period, uh, a man by the name of John Callis, a former haberdasher apprentice from Tintern, was one of the more notorious Welsh pirates. He served briefly in the Royal Navy under Sir William Winter and Sir John Berkeley, but apparently that ended after a relatively short stint. Callis was active as a pirate for roughly a decade, from 1574 to 1585. He exploited many connections amongst the gentry and civic elite of South Wales, basically acting to protect himself from persecution or from prosecution, as the case may be. He typically operated off the Welsh coast, but also sailed as far afield as France, which seems not that far afield, but at the time would have been. He like many other pirates of the era, were fairly localized. This, of course, would not remain that way. Alice would often bring his prizes into Cardiff or Newport, where the local authorities more or less openly colluded with him, or at least turned a blind eye to his efforts, either benefiting financially themselves or feeling a sense of loyalty to a local. During 15... 
86 to 87, over half a dozen pirate ships were operating off Wales, raiding ships passing to and from Ireland and then disposing of the goods at Milford Haven, Carmarthen, and Cardiff, again probably with the collusion of local authorities. One such of these authority figures was Sir William Morgan, vice-admiral of Monmouthshire and thus nominally a royal official tasked with the suppression of piracy in the area, yet turned out to be one of Callus's principal accomplices and a beneficiary from his criminal activity. Much like the roads around Wales, criminal activity was relatively a common occurrence in these days, where the state was either willing to turn a blind eye or profiteering from the ventures by these same criminals. This was, of course, key to how pirates became a contracted privateer under the approval of the Crown, something we're going to talk about in detail later in this episode. Piracy had become so bad that in 1610, Thomas Salkeld briefly declared Lundy, an island in the mouth of the British Channel, a pirate kingdom for himself as its monarch, using it as a base to attack both the coast of Wales and the coast of England in the Bristol Channel. During attacks on Milford Haven, he burned the village of Dale after ransacking it almost to the ground. During the 1620s and 30s, many pirates and corsairs from Dunkirk, St. Malo, Biscay, and North Africa plagued the coasts of southwest Britain and Ireland. Some would use Lundy as their temporary base of operations in order to achieve this. The convenience of the location, with its easy reach to Ireland as well, would allow them to raid and plunder all three countries pretty much at will. Anglesey and other coastal areas frequently requested naval protection, but rarely received it, which of course begs the question as to why that was, since it would be relatively smart for the local forces to shut down these raids, yet it was much like smacking a fly, hit one island, and the pirates would easily move along the coast and settling in different areas and different islands to stay free of the Royal Navy in the process. As well, there were too few ships being tasked to patrol and manage the merchant shipping to properly protect them. Even when they were able to chase a pirate ship, English ships often were neither as fast nor as nimble as those being sailed by the pirates themselves, so the chase would often prove fruitless and overwhelming. This may have sapped the will of the Navy to do any real enforcement, as they may have felt support by their commanders or even feel particularly driven to participate, as so often it turned out that the nobility was in themselves aiding these same pirates. So thus the will of the general bureaucracy and military was not highly motivated. The problem of pirate incursions in the Welsh coastal waters remained an issue throughout the 17th century. Sally rovers from the Pirate Republic of Morocco, for example, were said to be operating in the seas around Lundy in 1635, while in 1684 the Basque pirate Fermin de Albero anchored in Welsh waters prior to seizing richly laden ships just out of Bristol. During the 1630s, such raids proved justification for King Charles' imposition of the so-called ship money, which was intended to be paid for additional naval protection against piracy 
But in many cases, the king's opponents believed that it was a form of non-parliamentary taxation, something of which they would be very suspicious of and very protective against. This was, of course, just a few short years before the civil war that would be fought over what the monarch could and couldn't do. Perhaps because they suffered more directly and more frequently from pirate activity, Welsh counties provided and proved to be more enthusiastic than their English counterparts to pay the controversial tax. Also, as pointed out previously, the Welsh were pro-monarch, unlike a number of southern English counties who remained skeptical about all things Stuart. Thus, Monmouthshire paid all of its charges in 1635 by Christmas of that year, while in 1638 the arrears of South Wales and North Wales were 1.8% to 2%, respectively. Compare that with, say, Herefordshire, which was at 45%, or Warwickshire, which was at 54% unpaid, and a whopping 64% in Bedfordshire, meant that the amount of money being received from Wales was much higher and much more consistent. By 1639, the three Welsh regions made up half of the top six payers of ships' money, in marked contrast to the ten English counties that raised nothing whatsoever. Of course, at this point, a lot of the funding was likely being siphoned off to fight wars for Charles, who was avoiding calling Parliament in fear of their negativity and opposition to him, and of course, in preparation for the eventual civil war that would occur not long after this. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. 
because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. As noticed previously, the distinction between piracy and privateering was one based simply on who was covering the costs. In theory, privateering was legitimate and entirely legal element of naval warfare, like military contractors or mercenary companies that were being used up and down Europe to fight wars in this period. These privately owned warships effectively were being licensed by the state as a means through letters of mark and reprisals that gave them the permission to legally attack specific enemies during a periods of open warfare. The reality of this, however, was fairly hazy even early on. In order to prove that one was a privateer and was not a pirate, was down to the commission, or the letter that they had received. This was issued by a monarch or their agent, and it usually limited activity to one particular ship and specific officers for a period of time. Typically, the owners or captain would be required to post a performance bond, and the commission also dictated the expected nationality of the potential prize ships under the terms of war. At sea, the privateer captain was obliged to produce the commission to a potential prize ship's captain as evidence of the legitimacy of their claim. In one case, the seizing of a vessel that was the enemy of the commission was seen as legal. The seizing of one that was friendly or neutral was considered piracy. The British government went so far as to set down rules about which was and was not piracy. In British law, under the Offences at Sea Act of 1536, piracy, or raiding a ship without a valid commission, was an act of treason. By the late 17th century, prosecution of privateers loyal to the usurped King James II for piracy began to shift the legal framework of what piracy was, away from treason towards a crime against property, in other words, no different than a thief. By the passing of the Piracy Act of 1717, a privateer's allegiance to Britain overrode any allegiance to a sovereign providing the commission. This helped bring privateers under legal jurisdiction of their home country in the event that the privateer turned pirate. Other European countries soon followed suit on this same legal idea. During the Tudor and early Stuart periods, the way pirates became legal privateers became quite murky. For example, one of John Callis's last voyage as a privateer, licensed by Don Antonio, a pretender to the Portuguese throne, which at the time was under control of Spain. And through this letter, he was in quotes, legally able to attack more or less any shipping trading with or carrying goods from the Iberian Peninsula. During the early Stuart period, privateering was not a huge enterprise in Wales, yet that did not mean it was not important to the livelihoods of a few pirates looking to go legal. A number of Welsh ships still obtained letters of mark and took part in naval warfare. Again, I would like to call these early privateers more in common with mercenaries rather than straight-up legal pirates. They fought in battles and acted to impede the French and Spanish navy rather than just simply acting as merchant shipping raiders. 
They often still did that as well, of course, because of the profit margins were still fairly high. Thomas Panton of Bomatis was one of the co-owners of the Peter, which set out in 1665. It would join a list of ships that would then move out from Wales to act as privateers. Another example of this was in the following year, a group of gentlemen from southeast Carmarthenshire, opposite of the bank of the river Lauer, set out on the Revenge, which was commanded by Henry Mansell of Stradley near Glenethley, a 12-gun privateer which seized four French ships in 1667. During the Seven Years' War from 1756 to 1763, the 20-gun St. David, commanded by Captain Reeves-Jones, was fitted out by a society called the Society of Ancient Britons. It then sent out from Beaumaris. In the early stages of the war in 1757, she sailed out and in one particularly written about confrontation met up against a larger French privateer and after a two and a half hour engagement during which 29 Frenchmen were killed as opposed to five Welshmen, they took their prize and won the day. At much the same time, Ned Edwards out of Holyhead, who served in the Navy in the 1740s, took command of a privateer known as Viscount Falmouth, which issued recruiting posters in Wales and sailed against the French in North America, while David Jenkins of Carmarthenshire, who had moved to Truro, commanded the privateer Duke of Cornwall. All of these ships and their accomplishments were basically as both raiders and as war fighters. They weren't necessarily specifically just raiding shipping. That would become something of a tool that would be used more frequently in the 18th century, wherein the hiring of privateers wasn't necessarily during a war, or at least during an active war, but rather used as a way to dent and create deficiencies within a settled area where your colonial competitor was working against you. Often, for example, in the Caribbean, and something we'll get into in much more detail in the next episode, there were uh, English, French, Spanish, and Portuguese, and Dutch privateers that ran roughshod over areas in that various island chain due to the way that they were hired to more or less bother the other party. And legally, it was a bit sketchy because if the idea was it was supposed to be during a war, quite often it would just happen because rather than, <laughs> rather than some legal definition or desire, it would quite often be even more than that. And of course, when privateers ran out of commission or ran out of wars going on would then suddenly turn to piracy, which would then, of course, finance a lot of what they were doing in periods of so-called peace. In great similarity, really, to the way highwaymen became the key method for raising funds in the 
forested areas of Wales where basically if you traveled or traversed in small groups, you were putting your life in your hands because raiders would come out of the woods and attack you, try and steal your merchandise or take the gold that you might be carrying, all of which wouldn't necessarily happen if you had a large enough company surrounded by mercenaries or hired guns of some variety or other that would then protect you from those kind of circumstances. And of course, that wasn't normal. You had to be fairly wealthy in order to be able to afford such a thing. So a lot of merchants had to suffer with loss through this period. In a way, it's very similar to the way failed states in our own day work, where effectively corruption and criminal activity go hand in hand. And pirates definitely were working hand in hand with various governments. They had to, because so often, if they didn't, they would find themselves at the end of a noose, having been hung for activities that were considered treason. And of course, treason was an executable offense. So quite often, the risks and the rewards were very difficult to measure against when you had such legal difficulties and you needed allies and friends in the bureaucracy, in the military that would protect you should something go wrong. Um, as an example of this, you have men like uh, Fortatus Wright, who was a Liverpool Englishman who had been married to one of the Buckleys at, and through various reasonings, ended up becoming a privateer himself, leading a number of privateering ships. And from 1746 to 47, he, when the next war broke out in 1756, war, this war, of course, being the Seven Years' War, Wright again set out as a privateer, rampaging across the Mediterranean and almost bringing about a rupture in the diplomatic relations between Britain and Tuscany because he was causing so much damage. He was a terror of the seas at a time before his eventual disappearance, likely due to a sinking. In the age of pirates and the massive trade routes and the rise of legal and illegal piracy would stir a few men, at least, into the trade. The idea of a quick score of getting wealthy and retiring to luxury on a beautiful island or back home likely was an attractive prospect to men who often came from backgrounds of little wealth. The inability or cooperation of local authorities likely did not help as they tacitly encouraged more of these men to join on. Yet still, this was not a life that was filled only with stories of the myth-making adventures of Hollywood movie levels of storytelling, often just surviving time as a pirate was something of a miracle. And like so many other things, the amount of men actually becoming wealthy enough to live out their dream days were few and far between. Weather, starvation, illness, getting caught by local authorities or sunk by their hoped-for quarry led many to shorter lives and horrible deaths. For that reason alone, a pirate's life definitely is not for me. However, next time we'll talk about two of the most famous Welsh pirates who terrorized the so-called Seven Seas, and for them, the pirate's life was definitely something that they profited from. 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at Welsh History Podcast. Also, if you would uh, like to help out the podcast by helping to purchase the materials that we use to research these things, uh, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. I appreciate any and all that do donate there. They are the lifeblood of this podcast, and I appreciate it tremendously. Thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great day, and we'll see you all next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.